Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. I think my immigrant spirit of adapting kicked in and I said, look guys, we cannot sit here and do nothing because the stores are closed. Let's start a plan of attack and let's start going online. And we grew 154% online. That's Anastasia Soiree. She's the founder and CEO of Anastasia Beverly Hills. After emigrating from Romania in 1989 with a background in art, she opened a salon that introduced Da Vinci's golden ratio to the world of cosmetics. Today, her company sells more than 480 products in 3,000 stores with 20 million followers on social media. She spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman, Mike Milken. Anastasia, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. Every time I think about you, I think about the American dream, the opportunities to succeed based on your ability and hard work. You came from Romania to the United States 30 years ago, got a job working in a beauty salon and ended up leading one of the great cosmetic companies. Tell us a little bit about the background and some of the challenges as you came to the United States looking for an opportunity. Living in Romania for 30 years in a communist regime was quite difficult to do anything as a woman. So I had this dream since I was 18 that I wanted to come to the United States. I wanted to have the freedom of speech, the freedom of doing whatever. I I wanted to prove to myself that I am smart and I could do things that I would not be able to do it in Romania. It was not easy to leave, but thank God I was able to come here. And without speaking the language, I got the job. And I have to say that I was so encouraged by my clients, by people that I worked with. Everybody was so supportive. Of course, I had challenges to scale from working in a little room to rent a room, to open a salon, to get a credit card because I had no credit here. I always used the card of, I'm sure your parents or your grand-grandparents were immigrants. Somebody gave them a chance and please give me a chance. I will prove that I could work hard and I could make things happen. And every door that was closed, I will go back again and again and persevere. I will not give up. And 30 years later, I was able to get where I am today. I didn't expect that it's going to be easy, but having a business and being able to build a business in this country, and this is the only country on earth that you could do this, it was absolutely amazing. The freedom of expression that the United States offers you. I don't think many people realize in many countries you did not have the freedom of expression. I remember when the communist regime started, so around the 50s, people thought, oh, this is great. This is amazing. Everybody's going to be equal. We all will live in incredible harmony. And you have five houses. Okay, let me take your four houses, you'll stay in one, and the the other four will give to other families. I remember my grandparents, this is what happened to them. They were taking away their homes, their land, their money, their everything. And you know what happened? At 90, he was living in two-bedroom apartment 
fourth floor with no elevator because they took everything away from him and put him in a typical communist block apartment. And it was for me witnessing that it was, that's why I wanted to come here. Like, I cannot stay here. Every intellectual in the communist regime that wanted to say something was thrown in jail. You couldn't express your feelings. And you know what? I think what was the worst, in my opinion, was that everybody was paid the same. Let's say there were two people in an office and one person will work really hard and the other one will not work. At the end of the month, they will have the same paycheck. And after a year, probably you think, why do I need to work that hard if I make the same money like this guy? So you have no incentive. They will kill your spirit. And that's why I wanted to come here. This is the country that will give you the opportunity if you work hard and you want to do something, you are able, the sky is the limit. And you look at me, I am that person. I am the American dream. Now, I know you were studying history and architecture in Romania. How did this impact your view of beauty? I studied technical design for five years. My art teacher always talked about if you want to draw a portrait, you change the emotion on the portrait, just changing eyebrows. And and he was the one introducing me to Da Vinci technique that he used in all his paintings and was golden ratio. So I came here and... Never in my life I thought that I will get into cosmetics, but I realized that nobody paid attention to eyebrow 30 years ago. And I needed to find a way of fixing my eyebrow because my eyebrow was over tweezed, very round, and I looked surprised in every picture. <laughs> and I started developing this technique on how to shape eyebrow according everybody's bone structure and natural eyebrow shape using all the knowledge that I learned in school. Then I opened the salon in Beverly Hills, which we still have it today at 438 North Bedford Drive. I realized that there were no products for eyebrows. I used to mix Vaseline with some eyeshadow just to create this pomade. And the clients will say, well, my eyebrow looks amazing now, but tomorrow morning is not the same. So I start creating the product line. We are here today being in 2,500 doors in the United States, in 35 countries around the world, and we expand from eyebrows to full-face makeup. Let's talk about the idea that you were looking at paintings, and now you could change how a person was perceived by just changing their eyebrows. What is the golden ratio? So golden ratio is a mathematical formula that you find it everywhere in buildings, nature. The mathematical formula is 1.618. The human eye is so encoded to recognize this harmony that is created by this ratio. And what we used to do in art classes, you take a piece of paper and you start drawing a portrait. When you start shading, you create a 3D effect. You create the eye sockets, you create the nose by using shading the dark color and light color of the paper, and you could change everything you want. So I realized that you use dark color to contour your face, you minimize certain parts of the face using the contouring, and you enhance certain part of the face using lighter color and highlighter. So my daughter in 2012, when we just landed on Instagram, said, Mom, 
you talk constantly about this contouring and highlighting and the eyebrow, how important are to be able to create that perfect balance and proportion with the face. Let's start a contouring kit. Contouring existed in Hollywood, but nobody paid attention, the everyday consumer. And we were able to bring that and market on social media, on Instagram. And I have to say that was a, an incredible phenomenal. We sold it immediately. And then Sephora wanted to have it. And we were able to have it in all our retailers. But makeup is actually used to create an illusion of perfection. I remember 30 years ago, I used to have clients that they will come with a picture of a celebrity and say, I want to look like this person. And I said, yes, she's gorgeous, beautiful, but you have a totally different bone structure than her. Let's look at you and find the perfect balance and proportion within your face. You don't try to look like somebody else because we all are different. And with the idea of selfies, I think it helped us to emphasize this theory of it's about you and let's see what we could do with you. You've built a great company over a long period of time. You've expanded to 35 countries, thousands of stores. You brought in an outside investor in TPG a few years ago and created enormous value for yourself and your company. The coronavirus comes to the world and it starts in Asia, it goes to Europe, eventually comes to the United States. I'm assuming that your interaction with the consumer eventually shifted substantially to them buying online. And whether they were buying online from Sephora or Nordstrom or yourself, life had changed from the previous decades of your experience in building. How did you adapt? In 2012, we were the first cosmetic company that embraced Instagram. We know how to do online. We promoted our makeup on Instagram and social media. Then when uh, Instagram started the uh, IG story, IGTV, we start doing that. It didn't happen overnight. I couldn't do this on my own. My team was absolutely incredible. My marketing team, my field team, my SVP of sales, everybody internationally and domestic. So all of us, we got together the first week I think my immigrant spirit of adapting kicked in and I said, look, guys, we need to do something. We cannot sit here and do nothing because the stores are closed. Let's start a plan of attack and let's start going online and let's utilize our social media because we have 20 million followers on Anastasia Beverly Hills. And this is what we did. Within 10 days, we we're able to do all this virtual consulting it was absolutely incredible. I'm so proud of my team. We stopped the marketing in the stores and we put all the money in marketing in our own .com or retail. We'll have meetings almost every day, of course, Zooms, and we'll be able to switch and move wherever we'll see the biggest growth. So you had to be very vigilant and take action very quick. And if you look at the results, the market started growing online. Of course, the stores were closed, but the market hair and makeup and grew over 70%, and we grew 154% online. I think being able to switch and to put 
everyone online, I think it was very important for us as a company. And having 20 million followers on Instagram, we had an audience that we could talk to. It was very helpful for all of us. So the world has started to reopen differently. What do you see in 35 countries? How different has the reopening been based on where you are? Europe closed earlier and they opened earlier. They are open right now. Definitely the traffic is lower than used to be last year or the beginning of the year. I see that the dot-com is still holding on and people are willing to order online much more than they used to and not going in the store that much. And as you know, being in the beauty industry and selling products, you want to touch them, you want to see them. But I think people are going back to the ones that I know them, I trust this brand. So less for newness, they will go for, I trust, I know this brand, I'm gonna go and buy online. This is what I think. So many companies go outside to find product, develop product, then they bring it in, put their name on it. And you've really developed over a period of years a system to develop new product. How did an art history and architecture student learn not only to become a tech executive, but develop from a scientific standpoint new products? You are so kind. When I went to school, we did the mechanical engineering and I did technical design. So when I start 25 years ago to work on products, I remember they used to come with a compact because you buy the compact that it's already or you do custom molding. Somebody sent me a design of the compact and they said, oh, this is very expensive, 40000 or something. A really high uh, number for me was very expensive at that time. And I looked at the design and I'm like, oh, no, this is wrong. The, the technical design was wrong because it didn't function well. So, of course, everything that I learned in class from my teacher, it kicked in and really helped me to see and to complain about it and say, no, no, this is, could not be 40000 because this is the wrong. This will not function. This contract will not be able to close because the mechanic. So I have to say that getting into this business, everything that I learned, and I didn't learn about cosmetics, but learning about uh, mechanics, learning about chemistry, I was able to start making products that will solve a problem. Let's say somebody over-tweezed their eyebrow and, and they had patches missing. I needed to create a products because at that time, 30 years ago, there were no products for eyebrows. So I couldn't say, oh, let me go to another brand, get this pencil and go to a lab and say, can you copy this for me? I had to invent this product. And it was a collaboration with the lab and with the chemist and, and they will give me something and we'll go back and forth. I will tell them that I want something else that will be more functional because I will get the sample and I will work on the client. So I think most of the time the products are done by a product development team in an office. The way I did it was very practical. I would take the product and use it on somebody's face. So it was very good. I remember I used to give my clients samples and say, use this and let me know, call me and tell me how did you like, what did you like and what you don't like about this product. So this is how all my products started. 
But I'm thankful that everything that I learned in school, I, I was able to apply in, in everything I've done here. So as you expand your product line, how long does it take before you're satisfied to bring out a new product under your label? I do eyebrow products. My daughter does the rest of the makeup. We work on so many projects at any time because if we are not crazy in love with the product, we'll never launch. And to create a product from the concept to the end takes two years probably because you have to do stability testing. You have to do sometimes uh, you take the product and you take the component, you put them together and they will not work together. And then you have to start all over again with the formula. So it's a very lengthy process. That's why we work on so many products at every given time. And only the ones that we really love will launch. We've had more than one crisis in our country. We now have something that occurs in Minneapolis with a young man being killed. And it raises an issue of inequality, racism. And I know you were deeply moved in this area. How did you respond we all were shocked. We definitely wanted to do something. As a company, we pledged a million dollars to help the black businesses. Then 200000 to to social initiatives, 250000 towards mental health resources, and 450000 towards black-owned businesses. So right now, everybody is applying uh, a video to, to let us know why they think they will be the perfect company to get help and why they need the help and how they think we could help them. So it was a way for us as a company to show our support. And it was very important for me, my daughter, everybody that worked in the company. They were so proud for the measure that we took. And we formed a, a committee and uh, I have few of uh, my employees in the committee and some other people outside that I trust them and they help with taking decision. It's another organization that 25 black women that they would be mentor as well. So I'm trying to find people that I know that they could mentor because monies are great and helpful, but I think mentorship is as powerful as the money that they will get. You are so correct. And when we look at the United States, the United States on a philanthropic basis gives more than any other country in the world. But the amount of money, whether it's 400 billion a year, is still small compared to the giving of your time and expertise. And did you have anyone mentoring you when you came here? I think my clients were my mentor. I mean, they will be there on the chair and I will ask questions and they will always help me with advice. How I could measure the mentorship that I got from Oprah Winfrey every time I would be around her, just looking at her, how she directs herself, how, how she treats people, how she does her business. And I will ask her for advice. She always was so kind to me. That's incredible. Talking with you and you always give me advice. You always introduce me to somebody. So I am so thankful for everybody. And our previous first lady, Michelle Obama, she was so incredible. Every time I would talk with her, 
she will give me an advice and I will always keep in mind. And what can I say? Worked with the most incredible women in this country, from teachers to uh, the most successful women in the world. And having them to talk and give me advice, I will not have money to pay for the kindness and, and the help that I get from them. Let's think about opportunities for women in your generation and your daughter's generation. How does she look at the world compared to you? I came from a generation where it was tough. Probably only other immigrants will understand what I'm talking. Like my daughter grew up here. I don't think she will ever understand. Of course, she heard my stories, but it's different when you leave the story. I think the new generation, they have different type of pressure. Is the social media, is the way you communicate with everybody, are the standards of beauty, the standards of how to look. We didn't go through that. We had a different type of problems. So if I put on a scale, I think they have totally different problems, but they still have problems. Kids right now are more stressed than we were. I remember I was in the store and I had a client and she started crying. I said, what happened? It's like, oh, I just got my hair cut and he cut my bangs too short. And I was thinking, is this a reason to be upset? No. You know what is a reason to be upset? To be in Romania, not having food, you will wake up at one o'clock in the morning, be in line until 12 o'clock the next day. And if you are lucky, you will get the chicken. If not, the chicken will finish in front of you and you will be afraid to go home because your wife will kill you because you didn't bring any food home. That's a reason to cry. But you see, it's a different way of taking all these moments in life. And I'm not judging the new generation because I think they have a lot of pressure. But there are different type of problems, Mike, every generation. I mean, I know my grandparents. I remember my grandfather that went in two wars and he used to say we used to go in in the soil to find a, a root to eat because they didn't have any during the war. It's all relevant, you know. Problems, we take them in totally different every generation. You love to be with people interact with them. How have you personally adjusted to where you can't go out and touch, hold, see with your own eyes? You're now dependent on telecommunications, etc. How did you adjust yourself? I have to say that was very hard. The first month to not be in in a conference room with my team was very hard. I love my clients. I love to teach women. I love to show them how they could enhance their beauty. And the first month was very hard. Then, now, four months later, it's, I, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm okay. I need to adjust. It's nothing I could do. We cannot go anywhere. We are home. And this is what we have to do. I think this is the new norm. And it's not going to go away very soon. We have to go out and wear a mask. I, our eyebrow needs to be perfect. <laughs> so I think it's the, the next, uh, I don't know, the next year, this is what is going to be. You are the American dream. From not being able to speak English to coming here to working for someone else in a small shop to getting your own shop and then building one of the great cosmetic companies in the world today. Are there any lessons that surprised you 
along the way that you didn't think about? That a, well, a young woman today who might want to set up her own company? I didn't know anything, but I was willing to learn. I was willing to surround myself with people that know more than me. And I was like a sponge trying to learn everything. I was able to adapt constantly, try something. If it didn't work, I will try something else. I always have this concept of having plan A and plan B. And if the plan A doesn't work, immediately get into plan B. Because if you plan to do something and you fail, then it will take you a long time to go back and start again to work on plan B. So I was always very adaptable, changing towards where it works. And I think, and being very resilient, to be honest with you, and never give up. When I wanted to rent the salon on Bedford Drive, the owner said, eyebrows, you will not be able to pay your rent. This is Beverly Hills. And I said, no, I promise you, this is going to be huge. I'm going to make this drink. I'm going to work so hard. I'm going to make this happen. And of course, I use my tagline, like, I'm sure you have your parents, maybe they were immigrants and somebody give them a chance and you have to give me a chance. I will prove you six months. And the first week he called me like, what did you say? Because it's a line outside. What did you say you do there? Outside of the salon was a line uh, for clients waiting to get their eyebrows done. I didn't give up. I think it's the flexibility you've shown in the most difficult periods of this COVID-19 pandemic, moving heavily online from a physical presence in stores around the world, but also your response to the challenges of equal opportunity, challenges of African-American-known businesses, opportunities for women. I think that helps define the culture that you've created. So thank you for joining me. Good health. And thank you not only for your success and joining me today, but for agreeing to build a mentorship group of people that will mentor other people so that they can achieve their American dream. Thank you so much, Mike. You are always so kind to me. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.